Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I appreciate you making some time today to hear just a little bit from us about what we feel like is going on in the market and the economy. As usual, I'll remind you that what you're about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice, but instead should be utilized as a part of your research in understanding what might work best for your portfolio. If you need assistance or help on that, I'd encourage you to give one of us here at the office a call. We'd be happy to talk to you about it. With that, let's take a dive into last week and what the next few weeks might hold. Let me just say after last week in the stock market, we finally got a good week. We needed a good week. And it was significantly positive. And as of the end of the market close on Friday, every major index is now up substantively. Thank goodness we needed it. It had been a little bit of a rough ride since the inflation report earlier this month. Every time we do one of these, when you look at the charts that we send out in our weekly insight memo, you can link to it in the show notes, of course. But every chart I put out, my compliance officers who are listening to this and whom I adore because they keep us out of trouble, but they always require me to put something below every chart. And it's supposed to say that past performance is not indicative of future results. And again, our success last week is not going to be indicative of future results. You know the story really well by now. The Fed is going to continue to drive most of the performance in the coming weeks. And earnings, which are important, but they're they're following a distant second in that conversation. But the good news is we've seen some positive trends on both of those fronts in the last several days and weeks. So the question becomes, is this kind of movement sustainable? Is this kind of positive movement sustainable? In the short term, I, you know, we'll see. I kind of doubt it, especially with the Fed meeting coming up, especially with the election coming up here in just a few short weeks. It's going to be a lot of volatility over those two issues. But if you've been following this commentary or this podcast for long, you know that I do not try to make my bones predicting every swing that happens in the market. Those types of things are completely unknowable. But what we can strive to understand is the big picture. And the big picture, frankly, is starting to shape up to my liking and the firm's liking. We're kind of at an inflection point right now. Inflation, despite what the pundits might want you to believe when you turn into the scary news, inflation is starting to turn a bit of a corner. For example, we know today that 53% of the components that make up CPI are deflating from their peak. We also know that some of the biggest components that are not considered to be deflating right now, particularly shelter, I think shows a much better picture than what the latest CPI report showed. Frankly, I'm confounded by the data that came out on shelter in the latest CPI report. It surprised massively to the inflationary side. And bluntly, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's true. Why? Because a substantial portion of the CPI math for shelter is made up using a data point called owner's equivalent rent, or OER. So what is owner's equivalent rent? It's pretty simple. The Department of Labor calls homeowners, and they ask them, 
what they think they could rent their home for in the current market. And then they normalized that number and they looked, you know, so that when I say normalized, I mean, they say, all right, you know, over here in this neighborhood, last week they said this and this week they're saying that or last month and this month. And then they go look in another town and they say, last month they said this, this month they're saying this. And they put all that data together. They normalize that data together to come up with a figure of whether or not owner's equivalent rents, what owners are saying they believe they could rent their place out for, are going up or going down. Now that number in CPI, that owner's equivalent rent number, makes up 25% of the entire CPI report. It's a huge deal. Shelter as a, as a whole makes up over 40% of the CPI report, but owner's equivalent rent makes up over a quarter of that. And I'm getting that directly from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They put out a report earlier this summer saying just that. It is by far the largest portion of the CPI calculation. So let me ask you a question. If I called you up tomorrow and I said, hey, you, how much rent should you be able to get from your home? And you didn't get to go out and look on Zillow and look on apartments.com and look everywhere else. You just had to come up with an answer right now. What is an appropriate rent for your neighborhood? Do you think you would really know? Do you think that you would have a well-reasoned solution to what your home should rent for? Do you know what rent per square foot should be in your neighborhood? I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is because I know I wouldn't know what to say. And I know what owner's equivalent rent is. We deal with real estate transactions all the time. I don't pay attention to what homes in my neighborhood are renting for, and neither do most consumers. That's why it's fascinating when you look at this to see that despite the fact that owner's equivalent rent is 25% of CPI, it's completely out of sync with what's happening with actual rents. This is one of those moments I hate the podcast medium because I can't show you the chart, but the chart is in the memo. I encourage you to go look at it. But what it looks at is owner's equivalent rent compared to the data that we're seeing from the actual rental websites, Zillow and apartmentlist.com. And what we're seeing is that while those rent numbers have dropped off dramatically in the last six months, owner's equivalent rent has done the exact opposite and spiked through the roof. Rent growth is shrinking right now, and OER is spiking. And at the same time, we've had the most rapid deceleration ever, literally ever, in home prices. Granted, home prices are still elevated. You could still get a good number if you try to sell your home. But when you look at the percentage that we've fallen in just the last few months, that is an, ex an incredibly large drop. It's the largest ever deceleration. So it's a long way of saying, I think that what we're seeing today in CPI, what we're seeing certainly in the shelter component of CPI is not really indicative of what's happening today in the marketplace. And I think, I hope that the Federal Reserve does a lot more than look at what the CPI number was and make a decision. I think they're paying attention to these issues as well. So we're starting to see some good trends go our way. We're starting to see it on inflation. But I would also point out there are some other really big historical trends that I think are lining up in our favor. And understand this, we have to focus on, you know, widening our worldview, widening the picture here, and starting to look at what the situation that's happened for the last nine, 10 months means in the long-term scheme of things. And it gets back to our old favorite adage, the Warren Buffett adage, be fearful and others are greedy. 
and greedy when others are fearful. Now, why is that important? Because every time that we've had a dip of 25% or more in the S&P 500, which by the way, on September 30th, we got to 25.2%. Every time we've had a dip of 25% or more over the last 72 years, the results over the next one, three, five, and 10 years have been stellar. Let me go through the math. The average one-year return, positive 21.6%. The average three-year return, positive 36.9%. The average five-year return, positive 83.3%. And the average 10-year return, positive 213.7%. Those are big numbers. Even the worst period in this, the bottoming of the market in 2002 Even then, 10 years later, we were still up 38.3%, and that included a massive cratering of over 50% in 2008 and 9. So when you look at this thing, the history is on our side from the really big picture. And that also ties in nicely with another big picture item, how markets work relative to elections. That's right. We got to talk about the election. So I'm sorry. Right now, I know that whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, the hairs in the back of your neck just stood up a little bit. This country, for whatever reason, is as divided as I've ever seen it in my lifetime, and I would guess uh, many of you would say the same thing. But politics and the market are inextricably linked. They are something that we have to pay attention to. They're something we have to understand. We don't have to take sides. I, you know, I do get a little frustrated when I hear people in the finance industry picking winners and losers in politics because it really, frankly, doesn't matter. We're not going to have a big say in who the winners or losers are, but we have to understand how to navigate those wins and losses on both sides so that we can deliver the best returns for our clients. So let's talk about that because we know that if you break a president's term down, into its four component years. So you have year one, right after he gets elected, year two, the year that we would be in right now for President Biden. Then you have year three, which is the year after the midterms. And you have year four, which is election year when he's he or she is running to be reelected. And what we know is that there is a distinct trend in the performance of the stock market in each of those years. And there is one year that massively outperforms all others historically. What year is that? It's the year after the midterm election or in the current cycle that we're in next year. So what do I mean when I say it massively outperforms? Let's take a look at the data because what we see is that historically in year one, the stock market returns a 7% return. In year two, a 1% return. In year four, a 6% return. What does it return on average? In year three, positive 17%. That is statistically significant. That is statistically much higher than any other year in the presidential term. But how accurate is that, right? You could say, well, geez, Andrew, maybe one third year the market was up 110% and that skewed everything else. Well, we can also look at how many times we've seen positive returns in that year. And what we know is that year one has had positive returns about 61% of the time, year two, about 57% of the time, year four, about 86% of the time, but year three, the year that we're looking at here, positive returns 95% of the time. That is statistically significant and it's significantly better than any other year in the term. 
So I get it. We can make the argument, the old argument, there's three kinds of lies, right? Lies, damn lies, and statistics. We can make any number look good. But I think this goes along with another trend. And that trend is the defeat for the president's party in the midterm. What do I mean by that? Listen, America, for better or for worse, and I frankly think it's much for the better, has long believed that handing too much power to one party is not a good thing. And so repeatedly, the president's party has almost always suffered badly at the voting booth in the midterm election. In fact, there's only been four times since the Civil War in which the president's party has gained seats in a midterm election. The only one that was even close to recent was in 2002, and I would make the argument that a good piece of that was the nation rallying behind President Bush after 9-11 in 2001. So as I've discussed many times before, the market and voters agree, oftentimes though, for vastly different reasons. What we know is that this ends up creating divided government. The market loves divided government, because it means that Washington is stuck in gridlock instead of changing the rules of the game on Wall Street or in boardrooms across the country. Now, I'm not in the business of predicting elections, but those who are, are convinced right now that gridlock and loss for the Democrats are what we're going to get. So what do I mean by that? There's been some great news articles about Democrats outperforming this year, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. That's fine. But what we really care about is that right now, the odds of the Democrats keeping the House are just 20%. Currently 80% odds, according to 538.com, that the GOP will win back control of the House. And the odds are basically split, 55D, 45R, on who will control the Senate. So any way you look at it, we think there's pretty good odds right now that we're going to have divided government, and thus we're going to have gridlock. Why do we think there's going to be gridlock? Because the GOP has made it explicitly clear that they expect to spend the next two years tying the Biden administration up in investigations. They said it flat out. GOP future, potentially majority leader Steve Scalise was quoted as saying, quote, I think it's really going to be focused on holding the Biden administration accountable and getting answers. It's going to be a lot of intense oversight, end quote. Is that right? Is it wrong? I guarantee that when it comes to those of you who are listening to this, no one will agree with that answer one way or the other. But it does make the trend of the president's third year, the trend that the president is likely going to lose control of Congress and thus that we are going to have gridlock, much, much more likely. We'll see. It's just two and a half weeks away, I think. A little more than two weeks away from the election. We're getting there very quickly. There's going to be a Fed meeting sandwich in there as well. So there's going to be a lot of drama, and we'll be back to talk about more of it next week. Let's hope that this week continues to be a strong week in the markets, but hopefully we can get through this election and we can move on into uh, much greener pastures as we get into 2023. Thanks so much for your time today. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Take care. Securities offered through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered to Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.